You're listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, your source for all things blood flow restriction training. I'm your host, Johnny Owens. All right, fellas, what's going on? Long time no talk through a podcast. We we talk daily, but a long time no talk. So how's it going, everyone? Very good. Good, good. 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 So we got Kyle. We got Zach, um, a.k.a. Swole Team 6, apparently, on, on our call here, <laughs> and Ben Weatherford. So... Anyways, I, I kind of explained why it's been so long. As usual, things are lots of times when it comes to this my on my end, um, just getting things going and scheduled. But um, it's good to be back. And so, man, we have so much new stuff that we're going to have to cover over these next several podcasts because um, there's been a lot of cool literature coming out. Today, we're going to talk about Something that that we get asked a whole lot at courses or people asking us um, through email or whatever. And that's like, what are the progressions? How do you kind of program BFR after injury from the acute phase to this kind of subacute intermediate phase where maybe they can start doing more? And then as they're progressing into the chronic phase, um, you know, where they might be able to handle loads, what are you guys doing there? And so... Obviously, we, we see a lot of different things going on, so I think we can share all that. We can share what the literature probably says best, um, but, but I think just these basic progressions of BFR um, is a topic that, that should be touched on here to, to give kind of what the overall thoughts are. And so kind of before we, we get that going, just a, an overview of what everyone's been up to. I'll, I'll go first. So, uh, you know, I had some medical stuff with my wife, so I, I've actually haven't traveled as much as normally, which has been beautiful. I kind of like this lifestyle of, of being at home for two weeks at a time. Um, it's amazing how much honeydews I've been getting done, but uh, um, I, I had a, a great time. So we do an annual update at the NBA Combine, um, and so that's really cool at the Combine. All the medical folks from the teams get together. Um, and, and we get in and, and, and talk shop. And so I give an update on what's going on in the literature, what's going on in our current research. And then we also get together and just discuss with the teams what everyone's doing, what everyone's seeing and, and a big question and answer session. Um, and so that's really cool. The, the hot topic was soft tissue injuries because that's primarily what they deal with. Um, and we actually just put a blog post out. Um, if you're part of our um, certified providers, you would have got an email on, on BFR after a soft tissue injury. Um, the other hot topic was um, recovery, um, which I think is a terrible word because I don't really know what that means. So resilience is, is what we use in the DOD. You know, the line I use with them is, you know, a, a service member, their recovery in battle is after rucking 20 miles with an 80 pound sack on is uh, to sleep in a tent and take in some MREs that night. So um, you got to build resilience before you um, are able to quickly recover. And then I flew straight from the combine to uh, Green Bay, um, which was a good time of year to go. There wasn't snow, but it was cold. My hotel was across the street from the facility. So I was staying across the street from Lambeau and it was Bellin Healthcare, which is the the new facility um, for the folks that take care of the Green Bay Packers. Freaking amazing. If you rehab there, um, it's all glass and you're the rehab facility while you're rehabbing, you sit there and you see Lambeau Field right across the street. So they pretty much got the entire Packers market for rehab. Any any Packers fan is going to want to re- rehab there. But my 
warm ass Texan. I almost took an Uber across the street because it was raining. It was like 52 degrees and all I had was a t-shirt. So I actually was checking Uber because it was too cold to go with my bag, but but I didn't have one. So so yeah, man, that's what I've been up to. I'm, I'm about to head up to uh, Grand Rounds at, at Northwestern and, and probably going to go hit one of our NBA teams that couldn't make the combine talk because they're in the in, in the series right now. But um, but that's where I am, man. Kyle, what, what have you been up to, brother? Well, we had a, a nice big course out here in L.A. Uh, in April on uh, Weed Day on 420. Uh, I, I chose that date very well. And so nice. I made everybody tell me stories of weed stories, which there's a bunch of therapists. So everybody was just kind of like no stories at all. Um, <laughs> the bummer, or none they wanted to share. Therapists um, are so lame, man. I tried to get them to and they just did not take the opportunity to come clean and just have a good laugh. But, I might have stories. Yeah, there we can tell we can tell us in a minute. I should have I should have piped you in. Uh, and uh no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and, um we've been we'll edit that, out. We'll edit that out, guys. Yeah. We'll edit yeah. that out. That was that was pretty bad. I was gonna ask if you if you had a bunch of stories were like, well from what I hear, my friends tell me that yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and then there are a few just different courses here and there, but went to University of Iowa, University of Arkansas, and just got back this past weekend from Bozeman, Montana, at uh, Laura Opstadal's place out there. And that, yeah, that Bozeman, Montana is, is beautiful. I mean, yeah. it is just, it's awesome. So I had a great, great time there. Uh, I did learn uh, a fun, fun fact in Bozeman, Montana, if you're at the brewery, that place closes at eight. Like all breweries close up shop at eight. They're not serving beer after eight, but you still can buy to go beer. They just can't pour you beer to drink there. So good. Yeah. Um, just, good. So you're you can in drive town. Home, drive home with it. That's great. And yeah, exactly. It's just an, an FYI. And then uh, just today, I did a little talk for Azusa Pacific uh, phys Doctor of Physical Therapy program out in uh, Azusa. I'm just kind of on the other side of LA from me and that was a really fun time had a, had a good crew of, of, of students there so nice 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 yeah. we've had so many patients reach out looking for someone doing bfr at, in bozeman montana i mean i know yeah. bozeman just because i've had that question asked it's crazy so you're feeling yeah. a need out there man i, I don't you know a, yeah you got a good crew of folks out there now so ben what's up what have you been up to man uh, I actually have been a little slower also. I stayed home last weekend for Bryson's fourth birthday, but before that I had uh, training in Dallas for the uh, Mavericks and Rangers crew over there. And then the weekend you were at Bella and I was at Twin Cities Orthopedics up in Minneapolis. Yeah. In the St. Paul area. And that place is incredible. They uh, had me at place called the training house, which is right across from the practice facility for the Vikings because they're the provider for the Vikings. So everything's branded TCO everywhere on the Vikings facility and as uh, 19,000 square feet somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so very cool place. And then this, I guess tomorrow I'm headed to Waco, Texas to do a training for Baylor Scott and White. Nice. Yeah. Twin cities, yep. man, that, that facility looks amazing. I need to get up there and see it. Someone could just Google that training house and, and check it out. I mean, Bellin, Google that one too. It's amazing. Um, and that one's badass. My, uh, my old buddy who was the, our chair of sports medicine, Steve Sabota, then he went off to West Point, orthopedic surgeon. Um, he's, he's up there at Twin Cities now. 
And so uh, he's a good dude. He covers one of the – I think he covers the hockey team now in D.C. But um, Right. He wasn't there, was he? I, I, no. I, I hear there's another halfway decent surgeon heading up that way also. Uh, LeBron's going that way. Big time. Yep. Big time. All right. And, and, Zach, we don't have time for you to go over your 90 courses you did in May, but um, – um, what have you been up to, man? So just anything that was cool. Oh, uh, man. So when you guys were in Bellum and then uh, Minneapolis, I was in um, Baltimore at the Under Armour facility. Um, probably oh, one of the one up us. Oh, I was at yeah. <laughs> Hey, I mean, it was, I, I got to admit, it was probably one of the, the coolest courses that, that I've done. I mean, the lecture was done in a bank vault, like a legit bank vault. And then um, the facility was, uh, basically two stories. Um, so on the main level was probably about close to a 45, 50 yard Asher turf field. And then on each side of that, they had all your um, squat racks, Olympic lifting platforms, uh, all the equipment was hammer strength. So plate loaded machines. And then um, you go up above to the second floor and that's where where they had all the aerobic equipment. So you could basically be on the bike, but still look over um, and watch people exercising below. So it was, it was a pretty cool layout from there. Um, also, it was up at uh, the University of Delaware yeah. uh, earlier that week. And um, the home of East Ham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was crazy. So we were we were talking about some of the studies, you know, like the passive cyclic BFR studies where um, you combine it with some stim and get superior results compared to just, you know, cell swelling alone. And, yeah. you know, they were like, well, what, what is the intensity of the stim? And it was like, you know, somewhere around 10% MVC. And they're like, yeah, we don't stim anywhere below 30. <laughs> Typically we're at 50% MVC is where we yeah. stim at. Yeah. And I said, uh, I was like, really? You know, and that's tolerated. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you're like, they're like, you look at us about with the stem, the way that we look at you with putting a tourniquet on people, you know, it's something that we do every day and it's something that you do every day and you don't even think twice about it, you know? So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. We, uh, so went down at lunch and, um, with some of their therapists hooked them up to the bio, to their, um, to their biodex, stemmed them, um, with the Natsume protocol uh, and they stemmed at 50% MVC. Um, so wow. one of the, the, the nicer facilities from an equipment standpoint. I mean, they had four biodexes in their, uh, in their treatment space and in, in the clinic space at the university. So it was pretty cool from there. Um, and then uh, after that was up at, um, up at Kentucky at the children's hospital. So had the opportunity to train another uh, children's group, which is great. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, that's the, that's the third specific children's group that I've worked with. Uh, so it, it'll be good to kind of get them in. Hopefully, you know, we'll start seeing some pediatric research rolling out. Man, we're, we're, we're wrapping them up. You've done three. We've got Andrew's Children's, Texas Children's. Um, no, we have Kennedy Krieger was one you did up there at Hopkins as well. Yeah, yeah. So Kennedy Krieger, Akron um, Children's Hospital. And then um, I've been down at IMG twice and, and their staff that, that serves the medical needs is from Johns Hopkins. So, and we've, we've worked with Johns Hopkins as well. So that's kind of this thing, um, you know, unfortunately we just don't have any published pediatric literature with BFR right now. Um, it's not really, you know, I, I, I see peds and, and would see the service members kids but I never would do research or I wasn't doing research in that world. So it's not my wheelhouse, but um, clinically 
it's it's obviously being done quite a bit at some of these like power centers around the country. Um, so I mean, if if IMG is doing it, <laughs> with, yeah, with, yeah, exactly. With high price kids down there, um, that's a big deal. And 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 I think that's very cool with Delaware. And that's that's something, you know, as we're looking at more and more of BFR and ESTEM research coming out. That's why I'm glad we we have connections with Dr. Manal and the and the folks at Delaware to to help maybe guide a little bit more of this higher intensity type stuff. You know, we're, we're setting up a, a BFR total knee trial. Um, it looks like it's it's moving forward pretty smoothly. And um, you know, they're Delaware folks. They're not at Delaware, but they all are out of that program at another university, and and they're in that same boat. You know, high intensity, high frequency, got to get it on. You know, twice a day type of thing, and so. If, if you listen to this and you're one of our certified providers um, and you didn't get it, we have a PDF that we put out of best practices for, for e-STEM um, post-surgically all the way down to the best portable unit that, um, that Dr. Manal helped, helped me put together when I was with her at the APTA ortho sections meeting in Denver. Um, and so, and we're also happy to share that with anyone else. It's not in our group, but, but it's good stuff, man. Cool. Well, Everyone's been busy except for except for me. I'm, I've been chilling, um, just joking. And and so, anyways, let's move into the meat and guts of this podcast here. So, first thing I want to touch on before we get into progressions is just something that has come out recently, and and that was a position stand paper. Um, it came out what I think it was last month that the full text finally came out, and this is in Frontiers in Physiology. Um, and, and it's a full text. So everything in Frontiers is, is full text. So if you just go on and put in blood flow restriction exercise position stand um, in Frontiers and Physiology, you will get the, the full text of it. And, and so the genesis of this was we were kind of looking at we needed more of a standardized approach across the board, um, you know, from the way we're doing it clinically to the way it's being done in, in, the, in the research world. Um, so that we can always compare apples to apples. And, and so if you look at some of the early BFR stuff, you know, you're, you're just trying to even figure out what width of cuff they used. And, and, you know, everyone got a standardized pressure. And so then we're seeing now that, that maybe some people were getting more occlusion than others. And then it makes it hard to understand, you know, were the results really true? And if some of them, the results weren't as good, if, if everyone got equal percentage of pressure, based on their arterial occlusion, um, would results be different? And so um, Dr. Patterson, Stephen Patterson was the one who had the idea um, and then he just kind of reached out and and um, got quite a few of us all together. And, and what's cool is it's kind of a global approach. And so you've got folks from, from uh, the United Kingdom and from Spain and from Denmark and Australia and Qatar, um, in Brazil. And, and so it's not just, you're not going to have, this is the way this one region does it. It's pretty much around the world, how we all do it. And so the only Americans on there were me and Jeremy Linicky. Um, you got Dr. Abe, who spends a lot of time in America, but he's from Japan, um, Laurentino from Brazil, et cetera. So the, the, the next step is how do you even write a position paper and, and, and what is that? You know what does that mean? Because um, I've never done a position stand before, and and so what you do is make sure it's not a review paper. Because all you see right now, and and I'm guilty, man. I'm the king of getting asked to get on these review papers, is a BFR review, and that's just like, okay, here's what the literature says. 
a position stand is you look at what the literature says, and then you kind of take the opinion of everyone in this group. And, and these are a bunch of hardcore scientists. And so there's a lot of opinions. Um, and, and, and so you get done and the whole group will look at it and everyone kind of chimes in and, and you come to a consensus at the end of each little section and, and kind of say, okay, this was the final group consensus. So it was pretty cool. So they would get three of us um, and, and kind of team us up to, to write a specific section. So me and Jeremy, Linicky and, and then one Martin Hernandez, who's a, a professor out of Spain who does a lot of BFR work, were the first group or were put into the group. And we, we wrote the safety section on BFR. And so uh, we, we basically did everything from muscle damage to thrombus formation to cardiovascular um, to, to uh, reactive oxygen species. And, and you write your section and then we turn it into the group. And then you get a lot of red line edits from everybody <laughs> and, and chiming in on, on their part of it. And then um, after everyone agrees, it all comes together. And so just so everyone kind of understands the genesis of, of how this was done, we try to make it very non-biased of just this is what, what we see in the literature. This is what we, we see that looks like it works best. And so if you go through it, I'm not going to go through it all because you can get it. Um, but, but it goes down all the way to, you know, first section determining cuff pressure. And at the end, um, you know, it's, it is therefore recommended to set pressure during BFR exercise based on a measurement of AOP, arterial occlusion pressure, or LOP, which we say lots of times, with pressures ranging from 40 to 80% um, cuff width. Um, and we go to how much load you should do and how much rest period you should do. And if you're doing more of a passive BFR, how frequent you should do it. Um, and then at the end, we we put tables together to try and sum up each thing. So um, I I think it's something really cool. Frontiers in Physiology is a really high tier journal to have that in, and and so uh, I would encourage people to look at that. And, and uh, I I think it just helps us as a global group get together and and encourage everyone because um, we're obvious we're lots of times the reviewers on these papers to to kind of follow these rules so we can compare apples to apples. Cool. You guys, you guys read it at all? Looked at it? Yeah. Are we supposed to read those things? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Was, I think I mean it was required reading, especially my section. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's it's a. I just found out which section was yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I should have said that. Mine was the best section. <laughs> I think it's a great, you know, kind of gathering of information. I mean, if people are looking for something as a, an intro to BFR, if they haven't read anything on it yet, it's, you know, got a lot of things there and accounted for. And if nothing else, you're going to find references to a lot of the other articles you should read from there. Yeah. Um, so great, great place to find a lot of information. And I, and I think, uh, you know, if you're like, man, I, I, you know, we get this question all the time. Can you tell us like the five best articles to read or whatever? Um, you know, I would, I would say read the position, Stan, and then get the techniques and orthopedics. BFR um, journal that I was the editor on, because that that's basically a lot of the same authors who took a topic and wrote an entire paper on each topic, from yeah. from safety to geriatric to to ACL to whatever. And so if you just start at those two, you're going to catch up on probably like a thousand BFR papers right there. Um, and, and 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 you know here's something that's very cool working with these guys is the weed out that they did of papers. 
you know, of like, okay, no, we've run, you know, like rerunning some stats and looking at, you know, okay, I, I don't, I don't feel happy with the methods on this one. And so, you know, some of the stuff that, that was put in there is like, we got to drop that one because people weren't comfortable, um, you know, with exactly what they were seeing in it. So, so it was very cool seeing a, such a thorough um, scientific approach on a lot of it. So um, it's, it's a great starting point. Cool. All right. There's a million other papers that we're going to get into um, over the next several podcasts. I promise we're going to keep them coming. But but let's get into this. How do I progress BFR? This is a question we get all the time. So I got someone who's injured. All right. They let, let's just say that we're going surgical. We're going to say surgical, but but we can kind of talk about everything. What do you do right after their surgery? What do you do as they do more? What do you do as they're able to really start doing more? When do you stop BFR? When do you increase load? So all of those things, um, they're, they're great questions. And, and I think it's a pretty easy model once you understand it. Um, and, and there's a lot of clinical judgment that goes on, but, but let's, let's take it off here. So Zach, I'm gonna let you kind of start running with this because I, I know this is something that, that you get asked a lot as well. So, okay, post-surgical, acutely, I got a patient crutching in. What, what do we start looking at with BFR? Yeah, so I think the, the, at the very least, if, if they can't do anything else, then what we do is we put the cuff on them and then we stem them is, is what we do. That's at the very least if, if they cannot do anything else. Yeah. Um, so the, the protocol or the, the yeah, the, the protocol that I use is from the Natsume paper. Um, it's five minutes of ischemia followed by one minute reperfusion cycled four times with um, stemmed at um, with Russian cycling throughout. So it turns into being about 23 minutes of treatment mm -hmm. um, with that. If they're able at the very minimum doing quad sets, um, you can incorporate um, mo uh, active motion exercises such as a straight leg raise and, and go from there. The uh, the stem is at at least I try to get at least like 10% of the MVC, which is where uh, that paper was at. Um, and then the limb occlusion pressure is at 100% limb occlusion pressure. Is, so you is what use 100%. I, I do, yeah. Um, so if you look at the methods from that paper, it, it's a little difficult to to fully translate. They base it off thigh circumference. Yeah. But when they base it off thigh circumference, it's it turns out to like when you, when you put the cuff on your thigh and if you measure your thigh, the the millimeters of mercury, the pressure turns out to being close to full limb ischemia. I believe that that was the recommendation coming out of that position stand paper as well. When you're oh. doing a, a passive treatment and you're not doing a, uh, any sort of resistance, you need to be pretty close to full occlusion. Yeah, we put a range 70 to 100, but yeah. on the high end, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that. I, I want to really put a, a bullet point on this. As the load is decreased, it really starts to seem that the pressure of, of not, and again, we always have to make sure people understand this, not that I can take this thing up to 500. It's the limb occlusion pressure or the arterial occlusion pressure is higher, right? Right. If you're and, in and Jamie Bird's paper pretty much followed that same guideline mm -hmm. um, when, when they looked at it and, and they did it for four days a week for six weeks. 
they did it at 220, which again, the majority of the IPC papers out there uses, um, if they're gonna use an absolute pressure, it's 220. Yeah. It's not full occlusion for everybody, but it's gonna be pretty close to full occlusion for the majority of folks. So that's so again, I, I think- size, That's like 50%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the well, brown cup, I'm sure. The brown cup, and, yeah, yeah. I, I think we can, you know, we can pretty much reference the Lisandro paper with this also. If it's like 30% of one rep max or lower, we probably need 80% limb occlusion or yep. something right. at that or higher. Yep. Lower the intensity, we probably need to bump that a little closer to full occlusion. Yeah. Hard yeah. to say where we go above 80, but. Okay, so, okay, Zach, first day, I'm, I'm on the table. I'm popping pills. I'm pissed off because my knee hurts. Um, and you're going to blast me at 100% day one. Or are you going to build up to it? <clears throat> so that that depends on the individual. Um, so, you know, we have two kind of pre-op or, or surgical papers looking at mechanical pressure where they did IPC. One was a total knee. One was a gallbladder paper. Each of those actually showed outside with no exercise done from a pain standpoint, significant reductions at pain with pain at 24 and 48 hours. So the, the potential that someone's in pain that we can mediate that simply just by putting a tourniquet on them. I, I use that rationale also. And those but are if you have someone who just does not tolerate the pressure, an older individual, total knee replacement, or maybe an individual who just does not like the pressure, yeah, you don't you don't have to go to um, full occlusion, um, 80%, 70%, you can reduce it from there. And that's the same thing that I talk about um, that Ben just referenced. You know, if you're going to actually do resistance exercise, the pressure is important, but also the load is important. So you can modify the, um, the load if you need to dip that pressure down even lower. So they did a, a 40 and 40 and had the same effect as if you're lifting at 85% under free flow conditions. So if, if someone comes in from a post-op standpoint and they just don't tolerate that pressure, ideally, I in the lower extremity, I don't like to go below 60% um, if we're using a low load or minimal loads. Um, if they're able to tolerate for a given exercise a higher load, then we can dip that pressure down a little bit lower, but in an acute post-op period, that's probably not going to be the case. Right. And and so just to clarify, those IPC papers, they were pre-surgical that showed reduced. Correct. Correct. So, yep. So that, but is it fascinating, you know, pre-surgical, full occlusion, multiple, we think full occlusion, they used a standard pressure, which always kills me, but um, um, for multiple bouts, had less pain post-surgery and had less opioid use. Yeah, yeah, the op the the um, gallbladder paper was less opiate use as well. So that that that's pretty phenomenal. Simply because all you did was just put a tourniquet on someone. Yeah, yeah. And so, where's your pad placement? Do you put anything under the cuff? Um. So so I don't. Um. I I, I will put um just below the cuff on the VM or on the uh, VL and then across the VMO as well. Yeah. And so just a that's the way we do it. When I was with one of the NBA teams, they had one of those compact systems that have like five pads. They have a ton of pads. Um, and so we put the pads all where they typically put them and had the cuff right over it on the player and, and had no issues at all. And I've talked to that team and, and several others use the same system. And even with the pads under the cuff, it didn't 
seemed to change, you know, the way the the, the pressure was on the pad or anything like that. So I, I think potentially too, if, if you're worried, it's like a small limb and there's not enough room, you could put the pad on the cuff and it's no problem. So how, okay, how, how quickly are you trying to get into a flex knee kind of isometric East end position? Or are you doing that? Cause I know that's, yeah. I mean, if they can tolerate it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially let's just say like an ACL is as soon as, as soon as we can get them into a, a protective open range position, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that just be like an isometric say at, you know, stem at six at sixty degrees. Yeah, stem at sixty degrees, um, and and go from there. And and everything from the Delaware folks, you know, again, I mean, these are the stem leaders. When you look at their papers, or when Dr. Manal and I were were going through some of her stuff, it, everything to do with stem is at a flex knee post op ACL. Yeah. So I specifically asked them. I said, like, how early are you guys start starting open chain? They're like freaking post-op day or you know day of the eval and they're they're doing in a protective range they may do isometrics you know very very early on but they're going 90 to 45 yeah um yeah. I, and i think i think that's an important point johnny and i think that's something kyle and i have talked about before is this idea that you know the strain on the acl when you get into terminal extension yeah absolutely there's strain on the acl but that that strain is there when you walk as well sure. you know there, there was a a, a a paper published looking at the strain during the gate phase is actually higher during terminal swing than what you get with doing a full um, open kinetic chain uh, motion at, at a 12 rep max uh, load. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the loads, the strain is there. And then they, the this paper followed them out for two years and saw no added or increased laxity at two years. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. Yeah. So I, I think that's, yeah, that's a fun Twitter conversation to follow along. If those yeah. Of you, that, that, those of you that Twitter just look for Lynn Snyder Mackler and Sue Sigler. Yeah. Them just kind of going at and uh, Greg Lehman jumps in there and um, yeah, it's sometimes hard to follow conversations on Twitter, but um, that's a good one because you got some, some smart people just kind of going after it and really talking open chain, closed chain, I mean, we see, you know, when we when we teach these courses and we talk about that one, you know, squat study and they looked at hypertrophy, too. You see it right there in front of you. You know, you've got the, the study that does a squat versus a leg curl and they see greater hypertrophy in the glute, greater hypertrophy in the hamstring, the quad hypertrophy, but not nearly as much as the hamstring or the glute. And it's primarily because the squat just doesn't load up the quad enough. There's not enough work happening in the quad to substantially cause any sort of adaptive change so at some point you gotta you got freaking smoke the quad you know yeah george davies and i that's the thing that always gets me is you know it's like you you talk with people and they're like well man do you think this would work for someone who's a a chronic acl person you know that's out like seven months but still or, or a year out and still has atrophy well, yeah, but you, you got to do an exercise that isolates the quad. I mean, if we know the quad's the issue, why would we not isolate that and, and just target it? That That's the, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's we we got too functional with stuff, you know, and, and I was the king of Mr. Function um, doing all the goofy things. But, but yeah, an isolated quad is, is going to be what you have to do if someone has quad atrophy and quad weakness. I was just saying. George Davies and I spoke at an ACL symposium um, 
Symposium of the Americas, and that's what he was was preaching. You know, he had all these guys doing long arc quads. They were failed failed ACLs because they didn't have their quad strength back. Um, and and yeah. so then if you can throw a tourniquet on at that low level in, in the early stages. So, okay, but let, let's go back here. So, okay, post-op day one, you you want to get the tourniquet on. You probably need as high of a pressure or, or post-op when you can quickly start BFR on someone. You want to get the pressure as high as, as you can comfortably get them to tolerate it, probably between 70 and 100%. And we have that on our position stand paper. Um, I'm pretty sure what that, that was what the ranges were. I haven't read in a long time. Um, and, and what about frequency? So here, here's the next thing people yeah. say, well, how much should you get them in during the, we're still sticking to acute here. Yeah. So this, this kind of spans a little bit. Mm -hmm. So ideally, cause you want this period to last as short as possible. Um, and you want to start loading them as quickly as you can. So if we're just going to do a, a passive treatment, it really needs to be frequent. Um, you know, you look at the Takarada papers, the Kubota, the, the Kubota papers, uh, and then the, um, the Natsume paper. Those were pretty much all um, two-week studies done twice a day. Twice a day yeah. um, and, and to get the results that they got. So the attenuation and the uh, knee extensor atrophy, out of Takarata, um, the, the the attenuation of strength loss in the Kubota paper with uh, cast immobilization in the ankle, and then the hypertrophy out of the Natsume paper. Um, and then from there, you go into Jamie Burr's paper that um, did uh, four times a week for six weeks. So the, the challenge with that is I don't think they saw the, the muscle mass changes. They saw pretty phenomenal strength changes when they combined um, NMES with cell swelling, but they did it for six weeks. Uh, I don't know if we necessarily want to hang, hang on to that, that treatment yeah. uh, intervention, that, that, that specifically just cyclic BFR for six weeks. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, so I, it, go ahead. It seems like it really depends on your setting. Right, and what that 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 then that that's exactly it, one hundred percent true. So if you work in an athletic training um, setting or a PT with a, a pro team or a college team, and you have the ability to get someone in uh, daily, multiple times a day, yeah, hands down, man, I, I think that's the best approach. You know, but in reality, for the outpatient clinic, I'd say at the most you're probably going to get them in three days a week. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it always seems to be, be that discussion on what am I going to get approval for? How many visits am I going to get? Do I want to really burn through all this stuff early on? And it's kind of the you know, difficult discussion of, you know, are we going to get optimal from using this really hard really early? Or are we going to get a little bit more just kind of doing a little bit more maintenance early and then hitting them harder was, as we get access? So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think athletic training room, beautiful. Hit them every day, maybe twice a day early. and then progress from there. But yeah, insurance world, two, maybe three days a week, is what you're gonna yeah, get. And that's better that. that's better than none or one, right? Right. So yeah, right. absolutely. And, and in the military, right, too, we're the same as the pro guys. So we owned them we owned them. Um so when you know when we were starting this and still when we do it, post surgical, you are daily or twice a day in, in our military setting, um, in the acute phases until we could start loading you up. So 
I think I think for me too, it's so important that we have as physio physical therapists or physios, if you will, this really good understanding of this disuse atrophy that, that that we talk about in the course, you know, because if you can understand those numbers and how fast it happens, yeah. um, it gets a lot easier to have a conversation with someone that doesn't want to give you authorization when you know, look, you're gonna lose 10% of that quad, 30% of that strength in a healthy person just from two weeks of unloading, you know, and, and when you can kind of walk them through those things, um, you you can at least make a strong case for, man, we need to try to help this muscle stay around now yeah. so that when this person's able to start moving and stick and load across it, they have the capacity to do so because we're just watching the capacity go away and now we're trying to build capacity as well as range of motion and tolerance and who knows, you may have chewed up so many damn visits just managing their pain and trying to get their range of motion back, you know? So you chew up all those uh, visits at the start. You know, that's what's beautiful yeah. is if we're doing this, we're we're chewing up visits for pain and range, but we're also, you know, slowing down the atrophy train, maintaining yeah. muscle strength. Um, if yeah. you're combining your, your BFR with something like E-STEM. Um, and, and I think this is the conversation too. Like, you know, we get a question asked all the time, you know, what are people charging for cash pay? But it might be, you can come three days a week, you know, maybe you can talk the patient into coming and doing a cash pay visit, or I don't know exactly how the insurance stuff works outside the military, but, yeah. um, you know, could they come more frequently on their own and, and do something and just say, look, this is the way the pros do it. The military is doing it. Um, if, if you were at that level, this is what you would do. So a lot of I people. I think what you see to- over time is these clinics kind of saying, this is our ACL package and we manage you from, you know, injury to, you know, whatever point and we'll bill your insurance, but this is kind of our, our package sort of thing. And then it gets you just kind of this comprehensive access. And then you, what you do is you just kind of monopolize the ACL market by doing that. You know, it's like, look, man, if you want to really get yeah. care, cause it's not going to cover it. I mean, the reality is you're going to pay a $6,000 deductible as it is. So why not as a physical therapy clinic say, Hey, pay us five and we'll manage your ACL. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and we'll manage you from, today and just you know three four days after you injured it all the way out to every time point and we're going to give you all these different strategies from protein intake to various time points along the course of your care that that you that you're going to understand and know and what we're expecting of you um i would back up just a little bit zach and kind of talk i've used the 100 percent clinically as well after kind of chatting with you with the neuromuscular stem um, and it's been tolerated pretty well by the folks that I've used it on. I put the yeah. SIM pad up under the cuff. Uh, that's been tolerated well. One particular case, I had uh, a rather acute ACL who had gone up to a physical therapist up north of me and basically been given quad sets immediately post-op. So I get him like three weeks post-op. He's in a ton of pain, terrible range. Um, and his pain after doing five cycles of inflation and some of that with neuromuscular stem at about 60 degrees, he got out of our biodex and his pain was substantially less immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, his his range of motion started tracking along extremely nicely. Within two weeks, we were doing near full range of motion and exercise, you know, um, in, in that limb and really kind of getting after it. So um, in that particular case, it was a marked reduction in pain when he picked his leg up out of the machine. And if, you, if that doesn't get you buy-in from a patient, I don't know what will, you know, yeah. if they can immediately get this pain reduction from, and his muscle felt tired after doing it. And we and just that's, did. That's typically three, what you have to sell too, is like, this is going to yeah. suck kind of while it's on, it's hard, but most people get analgesic benefit, you know, and, and yeah. 
we, I don't know if we've discussed it on a podcast yet, you know, the beta endorphins or maybe another pathway, but you're probably going to have less pain once you're done with this um, in your injured area. And that, that definitely should get the buy-in. Right. I, I, you know, I would point out um, in Luke Hughes ACL paper, it's not published yet, but they presented in poster the they they had three groups, uh, you know, uh, a higher load post ACL, a BFR low load post ACL, and a a healthy non clinical BFR group. The BFR post ACL group had had significantly more muscle soreness type muscle fatigue than the BFR healthy group. So our clinical patients might be feeling it more than than we feel when we're doing the labs or messing with it on ourselves. So we just have to kind of be aware of that, that, you know, maybe they're not being wusses. It, the perception from that study was it was definitely harder for the muscle um, in, in the clinical group with BFR. Okay. So let, we'll agree. So there was this whole cell swelling or passive BFR or ischemic or have we seen a post ischemic or pre ischemic conditioning um, was done without <laughs> was was done without exercise. Um, when Stephen and I spoke at CSM last year, you know, he was doing all the IPC, not doing exercise, just a tourniquet. You know, and in the end, he said, "I would always say if you want the biggest bang for your buck, somehow add some sort of muscle activation. So if they can't do it, add Eastem. So right off the bat, everyone acutely, if you get a tourniquet on them and they can barely do anything." And we were, again, we're talking about like a knee surgery here, get a stem on them. Okay. So you do that, Zach. And, and that's a long protocol. Do you do anything else with a tourniquet that day? Say that again. So you've done the Natsu, you've done your five minutes on for, say, say yeah. the protocol again, just so we can reiterate it. Yeah. So, so the protocol that I'll do is with that Natsume paper is five, um, five minutes of ischemia at 100% limb occlusion pressure, one minute reperfusion, and that's cycled four times. So the total treatment time is gonna be 23 minutes, and then I cycle Russian stem um, 10 seconds on, 30 seconds off mm -hmm. uh, throughout that whole time. Even when the cup's deflated, Russian stem is still going. Once they're done, do you do anything else with the tourniquet on? Typically, that's at the end of the treatment, and so, what I'll do before or earlier on in a treatment is if, if I can like straight leg raise, um, whatever I can do with them. Because typically um, with, with everyone outside of maybe like a hip scope, um, but like knee surgeries, um, Achilles, you know, whenever I whenever they come in from whenever they get approval for physical therapy, they can tolerate at least proximal strengthening. So that could be straight leg raise flexion abduction extension um from there uh and then just to round out the treatment would be the the um um kind of cell swelling with the stem and the quad yep anyone else different ways they've they're doing it or seeing from all these other guys and girls doing it uh no i mean that you know i'm mostly kind of focused on trying to get me about five inflations and then doing whatever kind of exercise they can do and get them as active as possible. Um, I wanted, yeah. Zach, I wanted to back up a little bit because I know, I don't think you said it in that time when you were describing it, but before you had said you go to 10% MVC. So, but the problem with that in clinic is, well, how are you determining that? So what are you doing yeah. to, to decide that? And, and, and do you think there's a different way to do it 
Uh, if yeah. So I, I think the, the thing of it is, is, you know, it, it gets tricky in, in a post-op scenario um, because, I mean, uh, you, you just can't necessarily reliably test someone's strength, say, like post-op day one. It's not going to be accurate at all. But if you have uh, kind of conservative management, things like that, um, whether you use whether you have access to a biodex or a digital dynamometer um, and getting at 60 degrees, whatever angle it may be, and, and assessing strength from there and trying to get them to, to kick in to the dynamometer, the, the biodex, you can use it as part of the treatment and go from there would, would be how I, how I would assess that. So if you have a biodex or a dynamometer or a Humac or something, you, you put them at 69 degrees flexion and you have them try and do a maximum isometric contraction as hard as they can. And you'll measure yep. that. Say it's mm -hmm. you know, 50 foot pounds or newtons hour or whatever freaking country and, and what, what, what measurement system you use. Um, and then you would take the stem up until it got them to where they're able to push into it through the stem into about 10%, right? Right. Right. And, and so if you're going to say I'm best of the best, what are the, what are the best of the best doing? That would be how you would do it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and, and we did it when I was at Delaware, we legit put them at, uh, at, at 50% MVC. Yeah. So I, and, I and they clicked into the biodex at 50% MVC. I don't remember who it was. It was in the APTA ortho in Denver when we were all sitting around talking and, and someone from Delaware said, Basically, if you can't measure, take the stem up until they can barely tolerate it and then take it up some more. <laughs> so, yeah, when in doubt yeah. with stem, it, it, it looks like more is going to be better no matter what, because you're probably not just guesstimating 50 percent. You're probably feeling bad for your patient and getting them maybe at five or 10 percent. So, yeah, so that's what Jimmy Burr's group did, too. Um, they, they just stemmed to whatever the tolerance of the individual was. Yeah. So I think that's the key is higher pressures um, with minimal to no loads. And then when using stem as high as stem as they can tolerate, probably a little bit more. Yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I agree. Um, so I, I think just to, to wrap this up then in the acute phase, we, we want to get them in as early as possible. That, that's another question we really talk on. You know, we've touched on it multiple times, I think in, in previous podcasts, when do you get them in? when they can tolerate a tourniquet on their leg as soon as possible is pretty much when we're getting most of our post-ops, even post-injuries, um, you know, post-soft post tissue injuries, our blog, we talked about it. Um, it seems like the earlier you get them in, the, the more we can mitigate um, maybe the, the fibrotic response and the faster we can start to slow down the atrophy train. So bullets here, if they can't do anything at all, I mean, if they couldn't even like tolerate stem, which everyone should be able to, just a tourniquet alone done for multiple cycles seems to slow down atrophy. Um, and that's been shown in healthy models and that's been shown in an ACL model. Um, and they started in the ACL model three days post. And so if everyone, if people ask how many times would you turn the tourniquet on and off for different exercises or stem bouts? It seems like best evidence right now and best just what we see is three to five different rounds. So if they've got a good quad contraction and, and they can do a straight leg raise, 
um, or hip abduction or whatever, then you're going to get the tourniquet on and do those mat exercises for three to five different rounds, which each round is going to be about five to six minutes if you follow the 30, 15, 15, 15 with 30 second rests, um, which should be more than enough time for one um, occlusion cycle. Deflate it between a minute to three minutes, whatever their tolerance is. And when you use our, our, our stuff, um, we're always at least doing a one minute rest between and then in the tourniquet we use times out for a minute. And then you move into your next exercise. If you're following um, the protocol that Zach was talking about, the Natsumi um, article, it's five minutes on with a minute rest um, done um, for for what was it? Four rounds? I, I keep blanking. Yeah, four it is, rounds. It four, four bouts. Yeah, yeah four bouts. Um, and so that will give you plenty of inflation cycles. And then you would just do your mat exercises prior to that. Good. So stem pressure probably needs to be higher than what most people are probably doing. Tourniquet pressure in the acute phase probably needs to be higher, as high as you can get it, maybe up to full occlusion. And frequency needs to be as much as you can get them in. If you have the liberty to see them as much as they as you want, I would see them in the morning and the afternoon um, for those first couple of weeks. If you don't have the liberty to tell the patient they need to get as much as possible, explain anabolic resistance and why you're doing this to them to slow down that atrophy train. Good. Any other points you guys can think of from the acute stage? And then nope. magically, you know, they always say like, now they're in the subacute phase or the intermediate phase. You know, you know, it bleeds a little bit into, okay, you're not so much acute where you can't really tolerate loads. Maybe you do have hard restrictions, like they're non-weight bearing. Um, they had a meniscus repair, or cartilage repair, or fracture or something. So if, if they're in a, a, point where they can't put any load on, you're trying to still stick to this protocol as much as possible. Once they can put load on, we're moving into this intermediate phase. So not so much the cell swelling. We, we've always kind of called it the metabolite phase where you start to build up a lot more metabolites. So again, Zach, I'm going to let you roll into, we're going into intermediate phase. What, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So uh, ideally we're going to start using some resistance with them. Um, in whatever exercises they can either tolerate or exercises that they're cleared to do from their uh, from the procedure standpoint. Um, and with this, the, the rule of thumb that I go by is one compound movement plus um, one exercise per muscle group that isolates that muscle group. Um, that, that typically comes out to being between four to six exercises for that individual. Um, and, and, and the nuances of this, um, kind of when you look at the hypertrophy research across the board, um, yeah, Brad Schoenfeld put out a, a review paper looking at, um, it's not the, the, um, intracession volume isn't so much as important as what the, uh, weekly volume session is, or the, the weekly volume, um, per muscle group. And what they found was 10 plus. Um, sets per muscle group maximizes the hypertrophy. So if we apply that to what we're doing, say with BFR, you know, take a look at the quad. So we do say four sets of a, a squat motion, a leg press or step ups, whatever that may be. So you do four sets there per, per uh, day. You see them two days a week. Then you do long arc quads or knee extensions. Again, that's four sets per day. Um, so now we do that twice a week. That's eight sessions, ice or eight 
um, set isolated to the quad compare and, and couple that now with eight um, sets of um, a compound movement. So we're at 16 sets per week that should fully maximize that kind of response um, in the muscle group. You can apply that then to the hip abductors, um, to the glutes, to the hamstrings, you know, whatever muscle group. Um, so that's kind of the reasoning and the rationale that I use for that. Yep. Limb occlusion pressure or arterial occlusion pressure. It's going to be uh, 80% in the lower extremity. The, the caveat to this is going to be dependent on really what they tolerate when you initially get after it. And so if you have someone coming in, uh, you know, acutely post-op and we're cleared, we can load them. They tolerate loading relatively quickly. Maybe we go to, um, you know, downwards, the lowest I'll go is 60% um, and always try to progress them back towards the 80% um, each visit that I see them. And um, similar to what we were talking about initially when we were just talking about passive um, BFR and using higher pressures when minimal to no loads occluded. The uh, Lexandrile paper um, did 12 weeks, and what they found was if you um, increase the load, so if they do tolerate a higher load, you can reduce the pressure. And what they did was 40% 1RM and 40% limb occlusion pressure. Um, so that is the caveat. But if they if they can only tolerate 20% um, of a 1RM, that pressure has to be high. To, to get the response you need. Right. And I think we're seeing more and more kind of dialing in these these pressures. You know, even mild changes might start to make a difference. Um, you know, Grant Mouser's on angiogenesis, you know, 40% didn't have a response in the upper lower extremity, but 80% did. Um, Kyle Hagney's group has the abstract where we had a, a really large rise in, in the mesenchymal stem cells, CD34 progenitor cells at 80% limb occlusion. Another paper that came out the same week didn't see a rise at 60% limb occlusion pressure. So, you know, it might get in a few years here where we're really saying, you know, for this response, they have to get to this much pressure if, if we know the load is around here. Um, and so that's always a hard part, like, you know, how do you know what the load is? Well, probably your load's under 40% in this phase. I, I, yeah, exactly. So. If yeah. your load's under 40%, you're probably going to, and, and this is what I'm always going to do. I'm saying get them to 80 if they can get there. I, I think it's important. Well, and even yeah. that, that paper you just sent us today, Johnny, the one, you know, looking at the uh, myofibular protein synthesis and ribosomal biogenesis, yep. like they used a 50% pressure on the leg and had a strength response. Yep. But they didn't have a significant increase in satellite cells. They didn't have significant hypertrophy. Yeah, And so, you know, as far as the satellite cells and, and these mesenchymal stem cells, like we've talked about in the previous podcast, it really seems to be a hypoxia thing, or, or maybe Zach said it, it might even just be a stress thing. Um, but I, I do know that 80% is more stressful than 50%. So, you know, it's maybe we're, we're really talking about being able to dial in that, that stem cell response with that 80% pressure. And like y'all are said, I mean, we're probably not sniffing greater than 30% of that one rep max and, and right. kind of moving into that intermediate phase. And so that was a really good paper. Um, it was in Frontiers in Physiology. It came out today. Um, so it's full text again. Um, folks out of, out of Denmark, Peter, I don't know, ever know how to say his name, Peter Sajax. Um, but 50% limb occlusion in the lower extremity had a, a really nice rise in muscle protein synthesis equal to lifting heavy. Um, and so 
basically in a clinical population who's in an atrophied state, who's probably in a downregulated muscle protein synthesis because they're probably in anabolic resistance, there's your muscle protein synthesis pill. 50% limb occlusion made it go up and 70% 1RM made it go up. And so they did it three times a week over six weeks. But they did one exercise, so the volume probably wasn't there, right? Um, and the occlusion was only at 50%. So satellite cell content didn't go up and hypertrophy didn't go up. Strength went up um, in both groups. The, the hit group had strength at four weeks, or what was it, four days, and I, I can't remember, we just got it. And then the BFR group, their strength increased at 10 days after, um, which is interesting, almost to the same, same amount. But satellite cell content didn't go up and hypertrophy didn't go up. And I, I think that's a pressure situation based on what we've seen in the other ones. Or volume, like Jacob Nielsen's paper, they saw this massive rise in, in fiber size and, and, and satellite cell content, but they were doing twice a day. So the volume was, was big time there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what uh, we were talking about. I, I think you look at Nielsen's paper, they created such a shock to the system mm -hmm. that that satellite cell response peaks out almost at day eight. And then the, the myonuclear accretion tops out at training day eight as well. And we don't, and we don't get really a, a greater spike beyond that, it seems, because at three days post, you've already dropped from 290% to 243. Mm -hmm. um, so it leads you to believe, I mean, even though they didn't collect, you know, in between train day eight and three days post, it leads you to believe that there wasn't a substantial increase if it dropped down um, that much just three days after they stopped training. Right, right. So again, this paper, just to touch on it because it's brand new, if you have people that you're trying to increase their muscle protein synthesis in this intermediate phase, you can lift heavy at 70% 1RM or you can put a tourniquet on. They did it at 50% and they showed it increased probably at 80%. I bet we're going to see an increase even more, especially with that satellite cell content at three days a week for six weeks, right? Yep. You guys agree? And, and, yeah. and so then we have these other papers that show increases in muscle protein synthetic rate. Um, Fujita's paper, um, Chris Fry's paper. And, and that's where we're really maximizing the bang for your buck with BFRs in this intermediate phase. So the thing yeah. I like about the paper we're talking about that came out today is they looked at protein synthesis over a long time point. It wasn't just this little acute upregulation of protein synthesis, which, you know, it'd be great to see some more papers kind of look at that longitudinally, um, you know, over a period of weeks instead of just what's happening acutely. Yeah, this deuterium oxide that they used, you know, so you can see over a six-week period rather than a you know, three-hour time point and a 24-hour time point, right, which is it's pretty cool to see it rise like that. Um, but still, it you know, now – we have multiple papers that show we can spike muscle protein synthesis with BFR at low load. And so it, it's really a no brainer because our, we have a muscle problem at this stage. And it's like, we, if you use BFR right in the acute phase, you slow down and mitigate atrophy. If you now start to load, now you're going to start to spike more muscle protein synthetic rate. And we're starting to hopefully get hypertrophy and strength coming back. Right? So, 
every, here's the next question I'm going to ask. So when do you stop this phase? When do you start to transition off BFR? Yeah, so the the way that I do it in a clinic is as soon as possible, to be honest with you. And I, and I always tell people, I'm like, you, need, you know, that probably sounds pretty funny that here I am a big advocate of BFR and I'm telling you that to get away from it as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing is no, no matter what, um, you know, kind of review or even this paper that just was put out today in Frontiers or the Lexandral systematic review in sports med, it, it, it shows that the strength changes are greatest when you lift at high loads. Yep. And so, I mean, it, so the way that I do it in the clinic is if I see someone twice a day or twice a week, I'll do one day where I focus on muscle hypertrophy and, and um, predominantly most of those exercises are going to be done with the tourniquet on, mm-hmm. even the compound movements. We'll do low loads just because I can facilitate a good um, muscle hypertrophy response with the cuff. It's equal to lifting at high loads. Then from there, the next day or the next time I see them will focus more on strength changes and whether that's working isometrics or compound movements at high loads, that's, I structure the treatment to develop maximized strength gains from there. May, I may incorporate a couple isolated um, movements, single joint movements with the cup to maximize hypertrophy again, just to get added volume for hypertrophy. But that second day is largely, um, to, to increase strength. Yep. Yeah. And so this phase, we're dropping pressure probably down to 80%. If they can't, if you're worried about them tolerating it, we're going to start at 60. And and really, if what, what I do and when we're building these protocols for the studies, everyone's like, you know, do we need to use 80? And it's like, let's, because in the protocol for the study, you have to kind of have everyone starts at one point and then, then they go to the next point. If you do 60, they can hit that volume and they were okay with it. Then next session, we go to 70. If they hit that volume and they're okay with it, the next session, they go to 80. And then once they're at 80, then it's just about increasing load. Um, So the first few sessions is about increasing pressure. And then the next few sessions is about increasing load, typically, because you just have a a standardized approach. But I I think you can kind of start to follow that and get them to that 80%. So pressure is a little bit lower. Um, load is, is still low. Most of your patients aren't at 40 percent. Um, so you're, you know, just don't worry about it. Just try and get them to that 80 percent. And two to three days a week in this phase is, is probably the most you need. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, the big thing of it is, it's just like you said, it, I think sometimes that gets lost. You know, you, the progressive overload principles still apply. Yep. You know, even though we, we kind of use the cup and it makes it harder and, and whatnot, you still have to load them. And when they complete that 75th rep, you increase the load the next time they come in or just drop that exercise. Maybe yes. you've maxed out the potential of that exercise. So we don't do that anymore. You know, you, you'll phase out a straight leg raises at some point. Yep. At that point, you, you just move, move into another um, exercise. Yep. They complete 75 reps, increase the load. And that's that's the, the thing. And that's a good point. BFR is hard no matter what. BFR is hard if you're just lifting your sock. And so I think people get stuck in the it's hard phase and they don't increase load. If anyone ever hits mm-hmm. volume and it's an exercise that you want to keep doing, always increase the load. Always, always, always. It's a moving target up. It should be. 
Um, so people need to remember that because then you're going to plateau out. And when people are saying, well, I'm not seeing a change or whatever, it's typically, yeah, you're probably not increasing your load. Your pressure's not wrong. Or, or maybe we should discuss nutrition um, with, with these individuals. Okay. So that makes sense. How many exercises are we, are we talking about here? I know you talked about it. everyone else, just so we can say as a consensus, one, two, three, four, five tourniquet exercises. I think, I mean, I'm kind of on board with what Zach said somewhere in that, you know, three to six realm, you know, mm -hmm. three is kind of minimal, um, getting closer to five is probably closer to optimal. Right. Yeah. You know, that way you're, you're hitting a compound and then you're kind of isolating your prime movers. Yeah. And probably get everything you need in five to six. Yeah. I don't know if there's any reason to go more than that. No, it's, it's intolerable. <laughs> right. And, but again, these studies that are showing these great changes. They're typically one exercise, you know? Yeah. So by us doing two or three, you know, I, I, I think between the three to six is the range you look at. And then you move on to the harder, more complex exercises. And, and I'll reiterate again exactly what Zach said. Get them off the damn tourniquet as soon as you can and start loading. If they can load, freaking load. And, and, and there's a lot of people, if you're at a clinic that has that sees a good amount of patients, you've got four or five patients that are rolling in that are needing that tourniquet more because they're more acute anyways. BFR is the best in the acute to the subacute. And once you've done, if you've done their work right, then they should be able to load. And that's a beautiful thing. What about endurance? When do you start throwing endurance into all this? Yeah, so I, I do, um, I think about it a little bit differently. Now, I, I just evaled a guy who's getting ready. He wants to try to run the New York Marathon, New York City Marathon, and he's coming in with a patellar tendinopathy. So with, yeah, exactly right. I, I told him, you know, my, my story being in New York City last uh, last year was, I got there, did a course. I didn't even know that the New York City was, marathon was going on when I, when I arrived. Everyone started asking me if I was here for the marathon. <laughs> so either way, um, but no. It's like I, when I, I rode in them. San Francisco and it was Pride Week. Everyone's like, "Are you?" <laughs> <laughs> that, that's when Kyle decided to invite you. Huh? Yeah, he was there. It was weird. Uh, I didn't know you had chaps. He had red chaps. It was weird. <laughs> that's where that tourniquet's go here picture we not, from. Right? Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. we not give all my secrets away on one podcast, please? I mean, come on. Dude. But uh, no, so w with with aerobic stuff, um, I typically now for that individual who you know we're trying to basically work some aerobic stuff in with him so he can maintain his training. We'll continue it throughout, but um, strictly with with a muscle standpoint. You know, I'll do the bike early on as that kind of if someone comes in, say, following a hip scope or something like that, where we can do aerobic exercises before we're allowed to do a lot of resistance training exercises. I use it in that context. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, once I can start loading them, I don't work with a whole lot of aerobic endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that aspect, I, I kind of I try to move away from it. The, the big reason is. You know, when, when you work in a clinic with, with a few different therapists and, and you have, say, two to three units, it, it's difficult to tie up those units um, with someone on the bike when then you have, you know, two other therapists that may need those units for, like you said, an acute individual or for someone they're rehabbing. Yeah. But in, in, that, in that sense, 
Yeah, you know, we have a couple different papers out, um, two different papers specifically, looking at three times a week for eight weeks. And, and we do see really good changes in muscle, um, for sure. We get muscle hypertrophy, um, uh, cross-sectional area changes, muscle strength changes, and then 6.5% um, increase in VO2, cycling at 40% VO2 max for 15 minutes. Um, so it's it's kind of the, I think of it as a jack of all trades almost, where you get this a muscle mass change, a strength change, and then a BO2 max change. And what's great about that is you, you do not get muscle um, strength changes and muscle mass changes from single mode aerobic exercise, um, no matter the intensity that, that you're training at. You, the muscle, you just don't hypertrophy muscle and get strength changes. Yep. So... You know, that's the great thing with the cup. So, you know, instead of now, instead of just either attenuating atrophy with passive cyclic BFR and whatnot, you can actually put them on the bike. And instead of, you know, someone just walks in the door and it's like, oh, hey, you're here. Go ahead and do 10 minute warm up on the bike and then meet me over at the third table and then we'll get started. You know, you, you actually turn the bike into a, a pretty effective uh, treatment. Yeah. And again, from our pros and, and college athletes that we work with, you know, when they're really trying to maintain or, or maybe increase VO2 during these stages and, and they have the luxury of, of just being able to, to work it a lot. You know, I, I know with some of the programming, it's they've done, the, you know, a few of their BFR exercises and they go do the bike protocol or the walking protocol or something um, just because they would like to do that for six to eight weeks. And at the 12th to 14th week, their VO2 capacity is pretty good there. Plus you're getting all the additional, like you said, potential hypertrophy and strength changes from added to that as well. You know, no one's really looked at that combination from a study that I know of, of the combination of resistance training and then like say a bike protocol or something like that. And, and what do you get from it? You know, is, is it just too much yeah. or not? It seems in the cases we've done it to work really well with some really high end athletes. But um, if, if you can't get in these type of exercises for whatever reason, you know, we, I know we did it a bunch of, in the military with our stress fractures, just walking or riding the bike with it um, or an elderly patient. Don't forget that exercise because you seem to check all boxes, strength, hypertrophy, VO2, not as much of a high level as you would with resistance. That's always going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. But that is a, an easy go-to if you're like, okay, I just want to kind of do something to get all these in. And, and, and the typical timeframes, you know, 15 to 25 minutes. I, I think we put in our paper 15 to 20 minutes or something, 15 to 25 in the position stand. But Right. Yeah. And I, I just and wonder, though, how, how many people are actually hitting that kind of frequency and duration with an endurance-based application in clinic to, to mimic what's going on with the studies? You know, how many people are really doing – two or three days a week of, of hitting a bike for 15 minutes for, you know, eight weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, it probably depends a lot on, on your patient as far as how much you prioritize that. Uh, but I agree. I mean, it seems like there's, there's kind of a lot of things to be had for, um, you know, an endurance based application with BFR and if nothing else, maybe working it in and that, you know, kind of getting into that intermediate phase to break up some of the monotony of the low-level exercises, you know, giving them something different that's going to be a, a worthwhile stimulus, um, yeah. kind of break, breaking down a session that way a little bit. And again, pressure on the, in the endurance protocols with a bike or a walking is is that 60 to 80 percent typically. Um, I can't yeah. remember if that was what we put in the position stand. 
Um, I should have read that paper before I got back on here to remember what all we said. But um, th that's what I follow. And um, Jeremy Lenick and I, we wrote that, you know, from the lab to the clinic paper. And basically for the endurance exercises, from what we saw and, and agreed on, 80% was what you should, again, target for those. I will mention this. It's freaking hard as hell. Um, <laughs> you know, we we, we had yeah. a sponsored study or not a sponsor, but, you know, we kind of helped a university with one and and they started 80, but they just couldn't get people through it. So they took it down to 60. Um, they were looking at more of calorimetry type stuff. Um, but the constant cow paper, right? It was 80% for 30 minutes. Isn't that what we. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have I have trouble with that. I <laughs> but, mean, it, yeah. But, 30 minutes at at 80% occlusion, I just do not see many people achieving that. Yeah. So unless they, that was their target and they, they didn't really report, a, you know, when people actually failed and tapped out. Yeah. Um, and, and they, you know, they did use a really wide cuff. It was like an 18 centimeter cuff. So that that's seven and a half inches or so, um, you know, pretty darn wide. Their average pressure seemed a little low doing an 80%. It was like 95 millimeters of mercury. So but probably not for that um, wide of a cuff, right? Yeah, maybe not for that wide of a cuff. I, I don't. I haven't had a chance to really use something like that consistently. Yeah, um, that's what we use. Yeah, that, that idea. Of, yeah, that idea of thirty minutes straight, because um, you, you can get some really well-trained individuals to try and complete fifteen on the bike. Yeah, is hard to come by. And what did they? Um, what was the results of the Consecal paper? Just to remind ever everybody. Yeah, so you're looking at about. Um, 10% uh, increase in cross-sectional area, which was on par with what they got with um, four sets of leg presses at 70% of a 1RM. Yep. Um, strength changes were absolutely greater in, in the leg press, and that's what they measured um, strength by. But you still had a significant increase in leg press strength as well. The other, the other group or the other arm in that study was cycling at 70% VO2 for 30 minutes. Right. Um, and they saw no changes in muscle, whether muscle mass or strength. Right. And then um, looking at VO2, the greatest change in VO2 came out of the group cycling at 70% of a 1RM or 70% VO2. But the group cycling at 40% of their VO2 demonstrated a, uh, a significant increase in VO2 max as well. Yeah. So, you know, like like I said, you know, I, you, you get kind of the best of of both or all worlds here, you get a, a muscle change, muscle mass change, a strength change, and then your VO2 max. Yeah. Um, the the caveat with all that too that I, I always point out, and I think everyone we pointed out in the course is, if you're looking for a VO2 max change, I, I think you have to the cuffs have to be one bilaterally. Versus if you're looking from purely a muscle standpoint, I think you can get by with just having the cuff on one leg or one limb. Yeah. Um, but we don't, but, have, uh, we don't have the studies yet to prove that, but, but that's what we, we say and, and, and believe right now. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of that, when, when you look at the changes in what contributes to the physiologic changes in VO2 max, whether it's capillary density, you know, um, uh, mitochondria. Yeah, changes in mitochondria, things like that. That's that. Those are peripheral changes in the ability to extract oxygen. You know, to create a larger um, arterial venous O2 difference. So for sure, yeah.
It, it, it totally makes sense, and we believe it. But it would be we, someone, you know, maybe it's one we need to look at setting up is a unilateral versus a bilateral because it just hasn't been done. It's much more tolerable, you know. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Okay. So anything else on this intermediate phase that y'all can think of um, that we've missed? So bullets here, two to three times a week. Um, this is where this phase is when they can start to load. So if they were non-weight bearing or protected or whatever, and they're actually getting to where they could do a leg press or some sort of step up or something, um, get the tourniquet on with some load. Pressure's probably at 80% if, if they can tolerate it. If not, try and get them there. If they hit volume, take them up each time. Um, you know, the standards like take them up 10%, but whatever, you know, some people's presses um, don't, don't, don't allow that. So try and take the weight up if you can. Um, and, and I think that's it. Once they are at the point where you feel like they can start to handle more of a moderate load, then you start to get them off the tourniquet and you load it. I, I don't, and most people we teach and talk with, we don't start decreasing pressure and going into the 50, 70% 1RMs with the tourniquet on. Um, I, I just don't think extra occlusion when they're already probably at a pretty good occlusion because of the muscle contraction is giving you anything extra. And, and it's just, it's just miserable. So if they can load, just keep loading them. Yeah, there was actually a paper um, looked at um, low load BFR, high load BFR, and then high intensity training. You don't get any added benefit out of high load BFR, whether it be muscle mass. You know, the strength changes were similar to low load BFR, and penation angle was the same as well. So, yeah, I I, I think I completely agree with you. Yeah. And there, there will be a presentation in AOSSM that I think will <laughs> that will also um, um, kind of val validate that that same study. So um, the the other thing to point out too, you can get adaptive changes for muscle protein synthesis um, if you do low load without a tourniquet, but you have to do high volume, and so it's a lot of volume. And, and so I, I don't ever want us to like skip over that. You can get there, but it's 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 a lot of volume to failure, and in clinical situations, that's probably not ideal. So really, BFR is just a way to get that muscle to failure quickly um, to decrease load, so the volume's much lower. Yeah, I think Aragard um, did a study on that actually, um, ten sets of thirty six reps of squats, so it turned up three hundred and sixty squats. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not, not only is that just a ton of volume, it's really going to, you know, kind of, it's going to make you a little sore, but also you have to factor in, you know, doing 10 sets, 10 sets of 36 reps of squats is going to, that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. So, I mean, well, that's pretty just, much going to be one, one or you're going to be one or two exercises in your, in your treatment. Yeah. And most clinical yeah, patients would never tolerate that. Right. And I think we, we can all agree as far as changes for strength, loading always wins. Right. I mean, I, we can say, mm -hmm. you know, multi-rep max, we, we might get something fairly similar. Hypertrophy might be something fairly similar, but heavier load, if you can do it, always wins. Yep. 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 Agree. All right. And then, you know, I think the chronic phase we don't have to really get into because the chronic phase is now get at it, man. Get at it with your strength yep. coach. Get at it with your good therapist or okay, I gave you good muscle, <clears throat> you're good to go, and here's your gym program, and you got to keep doing this and start increasing load in the chronic phase, right? Yep. Good. 
All right. So that's progressions. Any other points y'all can think of on that? I'd say the, you know, one of the things that the clinic is always messy, right? And so you're going to be transitioning someone, you know, during one of these phases and they're going to come in and they might've just done too much at home or they might be blown up or some kind of something like that. You know, I remember a specific case where I had a guy post meniscectomy. We've been doing BFR stuff. It was really time to kind of move him towards um, loading stuff. And we were kind of working that way. He comes in blown up because he just did a bunch of stuff over the weekend, little honeydews and that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, normally I might have to say to that guy, look, man, you know, probably just best to go home, cancel the visit. You know, I don't do that anymore. I'm like, well, we'll just be a far today. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, just fill it in uh, in that space so that you're still kind of keeping that process moving forward for him. That might create a bit of a pain reduction. I think, you know, we unfortunately we, we still kind of fight this notion that there are these kind of clean demarcations of transition from one phase to another. And that's just that's never, ever, ever how it happens. And 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 the way you're adding load to your patient probably looks different every single time you treat an ACL reconstruction, you know, yeah. or a total knee, et cetera. I mean, it's just it gets kind of sloppy. And I think we need to understand those signals, as I like to always kind of go back to. And, you know, for us, it's like, man, try to make them really stinking tired. Try to stick a good amount of volume on them, volume on them and try to get away from that goofy tourniquet as fast as you can yeah. while you're loading them up heavy. So. Yeah. And then I, you know, I remember a case too, and, and this is a, you know, they went to load and did it for a little bit, but then they, they kind of developed this ripper and anterior knee pain. And and then they had to kind of go back and they came back to BFR. Um, cause that's the only thing they could really tolerate to, to try and keep working on their quad. Cause their, their, their knee just wasn't handling that load as well. So we had to do that for a little bit longer and then they slowly progressed back into it. So you're right, man. You, you kind of shift back and forth for sure. All right, good, man. So we solved the progression puzzle. We're done, man. <laughs> Woo. All right. Well, I, I think there's still something to address there though. You know, we, we talked about the acute and, and the intermediate phase, but based on that blog you sent us the other day, I feel like we need to address this hyper acute phase oh, yeah. of, of rehab. And then something we're leaving out there that <laughs> maybe we'll put that out in the, the Facebook group. Or yeah, something, we put, so. The Gomer blog, man, my favorite <laughs> blog in the world, hyper acute PT. 36 therapists working on one patient for one minute. All right. Um, so we got a question. We're going to do one question because we, as normal, we went long. So this is from Rob. It's, it's a chip shot question, but it's a good one. Do you have any data with a healthy geriatric population? Any scientific reason to believe that this may help reverse sarcopenia? And I would say, yes, um, we do. Um, so, Two, two just easy places to go to if you don't want to believe it just from us. Um, I, I think um, Kyle Hackney's article he wrote in Techniques in Orthopedics for us, um, it was mitigating dynapia and sarcopenia through BFR in, in the geriatric population. He reviewed the literature um, and, and really came to the conclusion that this looks like uh, it, is, it is prime for this population from what we've seen. And then probably the most recent one to really back it up is the, the systematic review and meta-analysis from, from Chris Sintner over in Germany. Um, you guys familiar with that one? Yeah, that, that one is, is, I think, the go-to. I mean, the effect sizes on that are huge. It's crazy. Um, yeah, you're looking 
um, with resistance exercise, you have an effect size of increasing strength of over two. And then when you compare it with walking, the effect size to increase strength over three, yeah. um, just, just huge, huge effect sizes. Yeah. I mean, those effect sizes are like, you almost have a hundred percent chance that they're going to get better. Um, yeah, you know, we, we, we just had a big call last week cause we're starting this multi-center TKA trial and the surgeons are like, I'm not sure, you know, I, you know, I see all the people you work with Johnny and, and we work with different people here. They're elderly and I'm not sure if this is ripe for this people. And it's like, man, it is, this is the group that it's the most ripe for. Um, they seem to respond better. Um, a, a little bit of, of muscle change in them is a much, much bigger deal than, than our athletes there. So we can't say it's a cure for sarcopenia, but it definitely looks like it's an avenue. I, I have no problems putting it on a geriatric patient. Um, and, and I feel like they're going to be the ones that are going to gain the most from it. And, and we were happy to see at our facility, they really tolerated and liked it. Right. Yep. Cool. Anything else, fellas? All right. Got it. Got it. So um, just to wrap it up, um, if you want to check out one of our courses, go to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com. We have courses. We got one in London this weekend. The podcast will probably be out after that. So you're hearing it too late. Got another one coming up in Austria um, and and then tons all over the U.S. and more coming up in Canada. Probably going to have one over in, in, in Asia again here pretty soon. So go to our site to get a deeper dive. Once you get certified um, and, and you're part of our group, we have a private group where we all discuss this stuff between each other and ask questions and answer them. Um, you'll get specific emails from us with updates on literature, like the paper that came out today. Um, and, and you get to hang out with, with, with a bunch of like-minded folks. So that being said, man, thanks for the long uh, podcast again. <laughs> I told my wife it'd be about an hour. What are we in, two hours now or something? But yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. <laughs>